With so many levels of government to vote for and with over 200,000 candidates running for various national and local offices across the archipelago, it is not a wonder that many voters feel confused about who to vote for. However, running concurrently with the arguably more exciting presidential election, the legislative elections have largely faded into the background and underanalyzed. There are many important questions that need to be addressed here, though. For one, what does the socio-political landscape look like this time around? What issues matter to voters at the local level? Also, what can we expect this time around in terms of youth participation and the voting behavior of the so-called millennial voters? To discuss about what is at stake in this round of legislative elections, I first speak to Ben Bland and Liam Gammon. Ben Bland is director of the Lowy Institute Southeast Asia program. Prior to joining Lowy Institute, Ben was a foreign correspondent for Financial Times who covered the 2014 Indonesian presidential and legislative elections, as well as the 2017 regional elections. Liam Gammon is a PhD candidate at the Department of Political and Social Change in the Australian National University's Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. Liam is also the editor of New Mandela, a Southeast Asian politics and current affairs blog. In this episode, I also catch up with young politicians Rian Ernest and Faldo Maldini from the campaign trail. Rian is a first-time candidate from Partai Solidaritas Indonesia or Indonesian Solidarity Party, running for a national parliamentary seat to represent East Jakarta. Also running for DPR seat for the first time is Faldo Maldini, who is a politician for Partai Amanat Nasional or the National Mandate Party, who supports Prabowo Subianto in this election. To get the conversation started, I asked Liam Gammon about why the presidential and legislative elections are being held simultaneously this time around and what implications this new system potentially have on the legislative political landscape. Obviously, for the first time, Indonesia is going to have the presidential and the legislative elections on the same day. Um, now, look, most talking Indonesian listeners will understand how the system works, but for the benefit of everyone who needs a history lesson, so far, the legislative elections uh, for all levels of parliament, national, provincial, um, and district and city, um, have taken place uh, several months before the presidential election. And so because Indonesia has this um, system of the, the presidential threshold, whereby presidents need to be nominated by a coalition of parties that controls um, 20% of the seats in the House in the DPR or 25% of the popular vote. It's a long story, but because of a because of some of the ramifications of a constitutional court case in 2013, this is the first election that is going to be held on the same day. Now, that obviously created uh, a few complications when it came to figuring out exactly the system under which this election will be held. 
because of this system of the presidential threshold that I just mentioned to really be workable, you have to have the legislative elections before the presidential elections, right? So you can figure out who has won what seats and what percentage of votes, right? If the presidential and legislative elections are held on the same day, you would think that the presidential threshold is moot. But when it came to negotiating the updated electoral law under which this election is being held, the government and some most of the parties in Jokowi's coalition, it was a bit, there was some, you know, horse trading here and there. But basically, the outcome of that was that, yes, the 2019 presidential and um, legislative elections would be held on the same day as per the uh, 2013 constitutional court case, but the presidential threshold would be applied based on the results from the 2014 election. Now, it's pretty ridiculous, and a lot of people in civil society said as much. It, it just makes no sense. I mean, why should the choices that Indonesians are presented with in the presidential elections in 2019 be governed by the results of a legislative election held five years earlier? I mean, it's pretty silly. The big question is, okay, is there going to be a coattails effect? Now, the coattails effect, of course, is a term that comes out of American politics, whereby people's selection of a presidential candidate affects what they call the, the down-ballot choices. In a sense, the coattail effect has been a feature of Indonesian politics in every legislative election. Parties do tend to telegraph to voters long before presidential nominations are made who their preferred presidential candidate will be. If we cast our minds back to 2014, right, you had all these posters up, I remember, from, PK, um, from PKB, the, the, the um, National Awakening Party uh, linked to ANU, um, advertising its chairman, Mohamed Iskandar. Now, he was a very long-shot candidate, but the, the calculation that, 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 that PKB made was that having this kind of tokoh, you know, a, a kind of figurehead figure, would mean that people would go to, to vote in the legislative elections in order to increase the, the bargaining power of the party in putting together a presidential ticket. Now, I mean, that logic is very faulty. I think that was completely uh, nonsensical. But in some cases, it did work. I mean, we remember, you know, in 2014, PDIP had a great year because before the, before the legislative elections, just before, I will say, they had announced that they would nominate Jokowi as president. And so they basically doubled their vote. So I wouldn't say that, you know, the, fa the, the, the coattail effect has been a factor even before elections were, were simultaneous. But um, I guess that's the question this time. Do you see more of a coattail effect? Do people's choice of presidential ticket and choice of party become, um, I guess, more congruent? Do they, do they become more coherent? Ben Bland agrees with Liam's assessments of some of the new challenges that have arisen from this new system of simultaneous elections, especially to do with the potential ramifications of this so-called coattail effect. As you say, Sola, it's interesting that the legislative elections for, for the DPM, the DPD, and all the local uh, legislatures as well have really been totally overshadowed by the presidential election, and that's something completely new, this simultaneous election. So it will be really interesting to see how it affects the various parties in their performance. Um, one thing that seems to emerge from some of the polling, and we don't know if it's going to turn out that way on the day, is this coattail effect for PDIP, uh, Jokowi's party, and Garindra, Frabowo's party. So because obviously the two presidential candidates have been attracting so much attention nationally, it seems like it might provide a big push uh, for their parties in the, the DPR elections, and consequently it couldn't make life tough 
for some of the smaller political parties who only just made it over the electoral threshold last time. It seems some of them are struggling to get over the requirement now, and so they may not end up with enough national votes to actually get seats. Right. And what do you think, you know, just looking at some of the polling data, like you mentioned before, any indication to us about which parties may sort of enjoy the coattail effects um, and which parties might drop out this time around? Well, it's it's hard to say for sure. I mean, polling, as you know, is always backward looking and it's a, it's a hypothetical test. But what we can see so far is that yeah, Garindra and PDIP, the two parties of the main presidential of the presidential candidates, seem to be polling very well, and it seems to be difficult for uh, parties like Democrat Party, the party of uh, former President Cecilio Bambang-Urayono. They it looks like they will probably get over the threshold to get seats, but significantly reduce performance. And then I think there's a question mark over some of the uh, Islamic parties like Pan and Paytiga. They seem to be sort of on the verge of getting enough support or maybe not to get seats. And uh, I think that seems to be because the votes have been sucked up by the two parties of the presidential candidates. It's left less support for everyone else, according to the polls, at least. But um, as I said, I think we need to be a bit circumspect and wait and see what Indonesian voters do on the day. And I, I think we just have to remember, you know, the sort of crazy choices they're going to face with hundreds and hundreds of candidates with five different elections at the same time. Um, I was recently talking to Dewi Fortuna Anwar, the former advisor to various vice presidents, and she was saying even her, as one of Indonesia's foremost political scientists, has no idea who any of her DPR candidates are, let alone the DPRD or the DPD. So uh, it's really hard to see how uh, the average Indonesian voter is going to make sense of all these names put in front of them on the 17th. However, still on the topic of coattail effects, Liam reminds us about the complex dynamics of the legislative elections and how voters have shown different behaviours when voting for the national and local levels. So when we're talking about the coattails effect, mostly what we're talking about is that that um, the effect that a presidential candidate's popularity has on a party's vote at the national level. But if you read some of these accounts of what's actually going on at lower levels of government, and here I'd recommend a, a very nice long piece at New Mandala by Marcus Mitzner from ANU, um, what becomes clear is that at the local level, it doesn't really matter. Um, people may choose a party based on a pre-existing political identity or you know association with the organization or what have you. But presidential... But, but, but a party's sort of presidential candidate doesn't really enter into it. And so one thing that's going to be really interesting to look at is how different are the votes at the lowest levels of um, government, that is uh, district, and, uh, district and city governments, how different are they to the legislative, legislative vote at the national level? It could be the case that, yes, there is some kind of identifiable coattail effect at the national level for PIP, Gurindra, Goldcar, PKB, so on and so forth. But I have the sense, um, reading these accounts from... Uh, reading these accounts from the ground is that at the local level it's going to be extremely complex. Yeah, it's very unpredictable, and I I'm, I think it's going to be interesting to see if there is a very great difference between local and national level. Uh, sorry, local and national patterns of of party choice. So, amidst the complex 
election dynamics at the local level, the sheer size and scope of the elections, and the many competing narratives being projected, how do legislative candidates stand out and appeal to the masses? In particular, I asked Ben and Liam whether they've observed heightened use of religious and Islamist rhetoric in campaigning this time around. As you look at the political parties in Indonesia that don't really have much of a policy platform, they're looking at ways to mobilize people. And, and obviously, religion seems to be the easy way at the moment, given it's such a strong issue in society and in politics it's become hotter and hotter so it's an obvious way to try and slice up voters or try and rally people to support you so this isn't obviously a completely new trend but it struck me you know walking around various places you would see candidates for local legislatures from some of the so-called nationalist parties like Golkar who are saying they want to support Sharia local bylaws, they want to support Sharia business. And yeah, this is something we've seen in the past, but I think it's probably continued and it may even be deepening. I, I think that the harder challenge in general, and I think the, the call to religion reflects that, is just how do you stand out amid all these many, many names? And, and clearly there's this trend in Indonesia where you have the children of former leaders and the children of current party leaders and and famous business people and celebrities, they obviously get a lot of attention. So for the other candidates, what can they do? I mean, some people try and go for money politics and give cash. Some people are trying still very traditional methods of billboards and being on TV. And others are trying newer things, like experimenting with, with social media and messaging platforms. And among the candidates I spoke to, there was really a diverse range of approaches And there wasn't even a clear difference among age groups, say. So I spoke to a number of younger first-time candidates, and some of them were really going the traditional route of posters, billboards, stickers, uh, rallies, and others were trying to drive a social media campaign because they said they didn't have the cash for all the traditional stuff, and they felt it was a much more effective way to get through to voters. So... Um, some of the people were putting their WhatsApp phone numbers, WhatsApp mobile phone number on the on their billboards and on stickers. And some were even paying their volunteers uh, to get mobile phone numbers and get people added to WhatsApp groups. And they were running hundreds of WhatsApp groups uh, with potential voters in them and just dumping huge amounts of content. So clips of uh, TV interviews, uh, little posters, memes, whatever spreading huge, huge amounts of content through WhatsApp. But it's really unclear how effective that's going to be. Liam has a similar observation about the more widespread use of religious narratives this time around, particularly among candidates with weaker policy platforms. It's very difficult, you know, to walk around a city in Indonesia or walk around a district or whatever and, and observe such campaigning as is visible to the naked eye and, and make these sort of you know, sweeping statements about what is and isn't going on. But I will say that if you walk around parts of urban Indonesia that I did on my last trip, um, you do see a lot of spanduk, the, uh, sort of posters rather, uh, of candidates that will advertise that they are here to Mela Islam or they're here to Mela uh, Umat um, or Menunjung Tinggi Islam or so on and so forth. Um, so you do get a bit of religious rhetoric. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I'm not really in a position to say whether it's rising or falling, whether it's getting more or less overt and so on. But it's definitely, a, obviously, a very mainstream part of campaigning. And not necessarily, not necessarily just from, quote-unquote, religious parties, from the likes of PKB or PKS. You are, you're as likely to see uh, Golkar candidates um, 
put uh, references to religion on their posters, usually uh, Islam, uh, Islamic as far as I could see. We do have a tremendous amount of research, however, that does document how completely ubiquitous uh, money politics is. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that money politics is um, going to be less of a feature this year than it was last time around. On the topic of money politics, I caught up with Rian Ernest from Indonesian Solidarity Party, who was a guest on Talking Indonesia last year at the beginning of his campaign trail. Rian talked about how, as a young politician trying to get elected on a clean anti-corruption platform, it has been extremely difficult for him to break through amidst the prevalence of money politics on the ground. So, as we all know, in Indonesia, there was this case, a member of parliament candidate got arrested by Indonesian Corruption Eradication Commission because this person was alleged to prepare this money giveaway to his constituents. The money was amounting to eight billion rupiah. Wow. So this is this is this is one this is again one case but then it 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 gives us a a, a glimpse of how things are going on. Uh, before the election day. So usually three weeks before the election, uh, the the not so good member of parliament candidate will do these bad practices. So so in contrast to that, so three weeks before the election, I have this mixed feelings that, you know what, I've done my best. Well, if I gave them a signal that, you know what, let's have a conversation about the staples and money. So sometimes their eyes uh, are going to be different, you know. You, you you grab their attention, <laughs> but then but then I, I I tell a story that you know what if I gave you staples and also money of course the salary from becoming member of parliament of course it will not cover the co- it will not cover the cost right because well the cost of money and staples give away from my estimation it will cost me around thirty billion rupiah and uh, legit money that we can get as a member of parliament. For five years, maybe we can get around four to six billion rupiah. So, so from that amount, I, I told my constituents, it's not because I don't want to do it. I must not do it <laughs> because at the end of the day, if I do it, of course, I will have this mentality of trying to make my break even <laughs> in in politics. So, so that is the reality, and I don't see it as as my weakness or as a problem. But I just face it as a reality. Indeed, one of the most striking phenomena that observers have noticed in this legislative election has been the visibility of young first-time candidates such as Rian. I was curious to see how young candidates such as Rian and Faldo Maldini, a fellow first-time candidate from the opposing National Mandate Party, market themselves to voters and try to stand out amidst problems such as corruption and money politics. To Faldo Maldini, the key is by building a strong image on social media. I truly believe today that people can access the media because uh, based on our uh, society today, people can access social media platform, TV platform. So uh, I try to be different politician. I mean, like, uh, it's better that you are slightly different than slightly better. That's what I believe. So I always develop my content. I always speak different with another politician. I always try to sharp what I want to do, what I want to say, different with other politicians. I think that makes me different. 
uh, yeah, you can see right now people who never meet me, but they truly believe in me because they they saw me previously on TV and on the TV shows. Uh, I always say that something that related with their life, uh, very low level language. You yeah. don't need to say a high level politics. You just need to be as the usual person and the content that I was use I I always use a uh, uh, very common content so the content is the king as Faldo said the issue of building an image and a reputation as a young political candidate is a difficult one especially because as Rian Ernest attests voters and more senior politicians doubt your capabilities being youth in Indonesia context is not easy Charlotte because the, the general society is not well accustomed to the notion of meritocracy i think uh, we are we have this you know asian culture of you know some, some like seniority or like experience is the is the best master those kind of things right yeah so i think in my context it's it's not my strength definitely and and to be honest with you from the survey uh the perception towards my political party People who voted for PSI or my political party, Partai Solidaritas Indonesia, uh, the, the the two biggest reasons are first clear vision and vision, and secondly new party. Right. Being young, being young, like you know, young cadre, yada yada, it's at the bottom. Actually, I just trying to emphasize of my presence on the ground. So I emphasize that you know I'm different. I knock on your door. I came to your district. Me myself, not just my team, right? I give you my 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 business card. You can always text me at this number, and I'm here. I can have a conversation with my with you, my constituents, for like an hour or so. I'm not just like giving you, you know, handshake and then yada yada yada, and in 15 minutes I left you. So I just emphasizing on the differentiation. The you know the the thing that. In a, in a well-developed democracy and in a well-developed country, it's a, you know it's really standard, right? It's it's not an added value at all. But in my country's context, yes, it is a it is an added value. I asked both Rian and Faldo about what they see as some of the key issues of concern for voters on the ground. Yeah, of course, at the end of the day, it's all about economic, all about economy, I guess, definitely. So two things that are always, you know. If I ask them what is your issue, of course, these top two issues, right? The fluctuation of staples price. So I have this fear, you know, of staples price fluctuation. That's first. And secondly is the the difficulties of finding jobs. For Valdo Maldini's notoriously conservative electorate of Bogor in West Java, he got a slightly different perspective where religion and social morality are issues that matter to his potential voters. Uh, the people always feel that they are inconvenient with the polarizations of religions today. Uh, yeah, you, you saw previously, I saw you, right? I, sh- I tried to ask them uh, what is your opinion about LGBT, about alcohol, and they feel that, ah, this is our problem right now. It's too much. It's too much, yeah. And in my opinion, uh, we cannot run away from this issue. So I try to uh, to 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 listen what what they what they say, and I'm trying to convince them. If we win, we won't try to solve this problem, this kind of problem.
Rian and Faldo may come from two different political parties from opposing ends of the political spectrum. However, one thing that they can agree on is a shared concern over the supposed trend among younger voters to abstain their votes or golput in local idiom as a way to express their disenchantment over either presidential candidates and Indonesia's political processes generally. Um, the golput uh, is uh, the big problem. Pak uh, Wiranto said that they can, uh, the, the government can send the people to the jail. I don't, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like uh, democracy. Uh, vote is a rights, not a obligation. Right. So people can use it or not. Uh, it depends on how you try to convince them to to vote for you on your candidate. Me, I got a lot of young people who, who, I mean, like I don't care about the presidency. I just want to vote you. They say something like that, and I try to say to them, "Hi, bro. Hi, sister. Uh, you choose or you." won't choose the president will be elected the chalek will be elected as well mm. so it depends on you and please don't angry if they are chosen i mm. say something like that and can you imagine i said the young people or the youth they come to a concert uh, many of them come to the from to a concert then to tps can you imagine Yeah. Do you want your playlist on Spotify or on jokes or on the SoundCloud uh, managed by your grandfather? I said, and they said no. Uh, imagine that your policies. So I just want to say to them, yeah, that's your right. Yeah, I agree with that. But if you are not use it, if you are not, if you you will not use it, yeah, unfortunately, I'm so sorry. Uh, The people will be elected as well. So it depends on you. If you want, please do the vote. For Rian, apathy is the more appropriate term to use when describing the disenchantment that he observed among the young voters that he met on the ground. I think that the, the, the big issue is not about the goalput or the abstain, the, the so-called abstain voters. It's more, you know, the apathis. I mean, in English, we say it as uh, ap- apathetic. apathetic. Yeah. Apathetic, right? Look, Uh, all of my peers who works in a like multinational company in the law firm and well in the government office everything they are apathetic towards politics right and I cannot blame them because we've seen enough right yeah we've seen like weekly you know weekly arrest of uh, corruptors and yada 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 so they have this apathetic traits towards towards politicians so that's that's I think that's my biggest issue I cannot move their perception unless I indulge in the parliament and then I I make difference right in, in the parliament so it's, it's not so it's, 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 it's like a marathon Charlotte to convince my peers and you know the, the people from my generation the millennials I was born in 87 and again most of my friends they said you know what Rian politics is just politics man I mean all of them said you know what Rian just be consistent okay I know you now, but I hope that you will not change once you involved in the parliament. Always, I always got that, you know, I, I always got that warning, so-called, from my peers. And when I do grassroots visits, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, I did my grassroots visits in East Jakarta area, generally from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. So most people that I met is the housewives, right, and the aunties. So 
rarely I, I met these millennials or youngsters because you know they, they're still working or maybe they're still at the university studying or, or something like that. So, so I guess you know the the distrust towards political system. I get it mostly from my peers and my friends. There seems to be a contradiction here, where on the one hand, we see many first-time young politicians like Rian and Faldo running in these legislative elections, yet on the other hand, there is rise speculation that thousands or even hundreds of thousands of younger voters may choose to abstain this time around. I asked Ben and Liam about their thoughts on this paradoxical situation. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point you've raised about, about that disconnect, although I'm not so sure about how extensive the goalput movement really is i think we'll, we'll have to see i mean one thing's for sure there's a huge number of young voters in this election so something like 40 percent of, of the the electorate are aged between 17 and, and 35 years old that that's that's a huge number of people and very significant base of, of voters and many millions of them will be voting for for the first time so i think Among activists and people who follow politics very closely, there's certainly a, a level of, of disenchantment. From other people, I guess, the challenge is, are they interested? Are they following? Um, we'll have to see. But I think one thing that always plays in favour of turnout in Indonesia is the fact that Election Day is a public holiday. And there is still is that sense of the, the Pesta democracy, the, the festival of democracy, where people have a day off and they go out and they're happy to have this right, which you know people didn't have for the longest time in Indonesia. So I'm not too worried about turnout. We'll, we'll have to see. But I suspect there'll be a mix of people who don't turn out, not necessarily just as a protest. They might not know or, or simply can't be bothered, uh, which is a phenomenon you have in many countries that don't have compulsory voting and um, i mean as for the idealism of, of younger candidates i think you know that that's a good thing uh, indonesia clearly needs your know, new young blood uh, fighting for, for political office i mean the question is how disenchanted those people become because some of the candidates i've spoken to while they say very nice things publicly privately um they found the whole experience tough uh they find it very frustrating they feel The parties have a lot of power, that the established candidates are, you know, in a much better position and they're, they're struggling to compete. And I've also had a lot of complaints from some of the younger candidates about voters not understanding what they do and sort of looking down on, on the DPR. So I think it's a struggle, not least because of the multi-member constituency proportional representation system. Um, some of these candidates are having to reach potentially as many as three million people. So that's a huge number of people over a really broad area. And it's a, it's a really difficult job. So I can understand why some of the first-time candidates find it pretty frustrating. But to be fair to them, it's good that they're there learning and, and trying to compete uh, and that they, they have the opportunity to do so. Liam agrees with Ben regarding the general disenchantment among young voters over the political processes. But he also cautions us against oversimplifying youth as a category. Liam also draws our attention to the fact that the demography and ideological leanings of the next generation of Indonesian voters are changing. This is one of the biggest takeaways from these simultaneous presidential and legislative elections. Yeah, I mean, so there are a few interesting questions that are kind of contained in that. First of all, about the role of young people. I mean, I kind of have to roll my eyes a bit when we talk about often, you know, young voters or the youth in Indonesia, as if, you know, the category of youth is 
you know, youth is a meaningful category of anything. I mean, young people are not homogenous. I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the last um, several months during this election about the millennial vote. And and it often it's talked about as if every millennial in Indonesia is like a 25-year-old graphic designer in Kabairan. I mean, it's just not, it just doesn't do, the. I think the conversation doesn't really do justice to some of the complexities of, of the younger generation of Indonesians. They, some of them are extremely conservative. Some of them are, you know, very cosmopolitan and wealthy. Some of them are doing really well. Some of them are, some of them are just being locked out of uh, the kind of jobs uh, that they want to access, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety. So, um, look, I wouldn't be game to make any sweeping statements about what young people are going to do in this election. First of all is that young people are pretty mobile in Indonesia and one of the issues with the way that voting works is that if your Katepe, your identity card, doesn't correspond with the location of your voting booth, it puts hurdles in your ability to vote easily, basically. Um, and so, I, I mean, anecdotally, again, we don't have, you know, rock solid data on this, but anecdotally, it, it, it's considered a it's considered a, a, a hassle for young people who've traveled for study or traveled for work and haven't updated their paperwork um, to to vote. That that might depress turnout. Um, we, we don't really know and I'm not really certain how we'd find out until we get an till we get an exit poll. I mean as for I mean young people's uh, young people's becoming weary of the presidential contest, I think that's I think that's real, and I think some of the and I think some of the 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 I guess the di- the, the the political diversity of, of younger people in Indonesia is reflected in the kind of young people that are getting involved in politics and getting involved in political activism right now. Um, you look at a party like PSE and you go, oh great, okay, people like us sit around and go, these are very you know cosmopolitan, smaller, liberal, pluralist um, civil society figures and 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 professionals, and great, that's what we that's what we want to see in Indonesian politics. However, I mean, let's face it, um, how are you going to get into parliament? They have to win four percent in order to get in. If they are not going to play by the usual rules of Indonesian politics, and that means basically. Um, handing out goodies to voters. It's difficult to see them actually operating as a substantially different kind of political party. If they're not, so if they are really going to live up to their rhetoric and campaign on ideas and be sort of conviction politicians, well, I mean, the ideas that they're kind of trying to promote appeal to a pretty small segment of the Indonesian population, let's face it. So um, I don't really, I don't really see PSE even getting into parliament, and and I think in if they were really being frank, um, their strategists would tell you that they don't see themselves getting into the national parliament this time around either. But I mean, let's see. And then on the other side, you also just on the flip side of that is the younger people who are being caught up in uh, very conservative trends within religious life. Um, we've all heard a lot now about the Hijra movement and and people and young people embracing very conservative interpretations of Islam. Now, part of that as well is withdrawing from political life. I mean, depending how far along the spectrum of fundamentalism you've gone, you you might sort of um, decide to withdraw from worldly politics altogether. Um, so uh, again, like I, we should stress that at, at both ends, these are at, at both ends these are sort of very small segments of of the population. But I think it's illustrative of, I guess, 
some of that diversity that they, which is something that I would want to emphasize. Now, as for I mean younger Indonesians more broadly, I mean the survey research that we do have tells us that actually they're quite conservative. Uh, I'm talking about sort of mi- more middle class young Indonesians here. I mean, talking about surveys that we, I've seen from uh, Indonesian uh, university students that have been done in the last few years. A lot of conservative religious views, um, quite a lot of Prabowo voters, um, quite a lot of, and this was long a few years before this election, I'm talking about this data, um, and some nationalistic views as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think that's that's going to be interesting to watch as, as I guess, um, a young conservative middle class I guess matures politically, starts to make its mark in the professions, starts to make its mark in in political parties and so on. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. And I, I think the trends are very clear. It's more conservative, but I think there's a hunger among young people as well for more substance from their politicians, for more ideas, more conviction. But I, th- I don't think that it's broadly, that the young people are broadly going to, at the same time, be a force for more smaller liberal or more socially progressive politics, and certainly not more pluralist politics. So yes, in, in a nutshell, uh, I would say that you know the next generation of Indonesians is going to be promoting a, a more substantial um, slightly more idealistic and ideological, but more conservative brand of politics. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for this episode. I thank all my guests, Ben Bland from the Lowy Institute, Liam Gammon from the Australian National University, Rian Ernest from the Indonesian Solidarity Party, and Faldo Maldini from the National Mandate Party for joining me on this episode and for sharing their invaluable insights into the little understood legislative elections to be held on the 17th of April along with the presidential election. Talking Indonesia will return next week on the 18th of April for our post-election roundup, an episode not to be missed. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Charlotte Stiadi for Talking Indonesia. Bye for now. Bye for now.